morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, if I haven't met you, my name's Cam. I'm the director for Campus Outreach Lynchburg. We have a number of staff, 13 or 14 staff on regional college campuses and, and students that we partner with to bring the gospel to college students. And uh, Rivermont EPC is our regional hub church. So it's just a thrill to, to be a member here, to work on staff here, and to worship uh, with you this morning. My wife's name's Catherine. We moved here about three years ago. Uh, right before the pandemic began, um, and we still kind of feel like newcomers, so if we haven't met you yet or, or had a chance to really get to know you, we'd love a chance to do that in the coming months and years. I have two little girls, Joya, who's five, and Myra, who's three, and uh, they're, they're down in the nursery right now having the time of their lives. Um, we're continuing our summer and on into the fall sermon series entitled Missio Nexus, Where Life Meets Mission. And you'll hear the particular topic for consideration this morning in just a moment. But before we do that and read our text, would you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you that we can claim all of your promises as your people in Jesus. Thank you that you are our covenant-keeping God. And we quiet our hearts now before you and desire to meet with you. We collectively, your church, we're silent now. We want to hear you speak. And we pray that you would speak with authority, with power, and for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. The Barkers were sound asleep when the phone unexpectedly rang. Frank, hardly conscious, managed a grunt while rolling over. Barbara, startled but awake, hopped out of bed and hurried to the landline. This wasn't a call she'd been expecting, but oh, how she'd been praying and hoping it would come. Frank, the pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and Barbara had met the man on the other line, Tom, when he was a child in their youth ministry. He eventually attended a local college and at the moment of his call was not following Jesus. Barbara maintained contact during Tom's time at Sanford University. He became something of a son to her. As Tom strayed from the Lord, he distanced himself from the church. The story goes that Barbara frequented the men's clothing store that Tom was working at to put himself through college just to cross paths with Tom. And the Barkers, living off of Frank's humble salary couldn't afford the clothes there at the store, so Barbara, needing to seem unassuming, needing a reason to be in the store, the story goes, purchased every time she would come in, the cheapest thing in the store, a men's tie. So apparently Frank ended that year with dozens of men's ties that Barbara happened to need to buy. Frank considered Tom more or less a lost cause. But God, through Barbara, was working in Tom's heart. As Tom spoke that night, it was clear that, though admittedly slightly under the influence, he was more sobered than ever. Tom was feeling the weight of his sin. He sensed his need of a Savior. And in the wee hours of that Alabama morning, God did the miraculous. Barbara pointed Tom to the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And Tom repented and believed. If you were to tell that faithful couple that following morning all that God would do through Tom in the coming years, even faith-filled Barbara would have found the story hard to believe. 
the gospel moved from Barbara to Tom and through Tom to his college campus. It started with some fraternity brothers that came to Christ. And then eventually, God raised up a movement of men and women on that campus who called on the name of Jesus Christ. They were being discipled in the context of their church and making disciples. That movement would spread to nearby campuses. Eventually, the Barker's Church and these young men and women would formalize this movement as a ministry. The ministry would spread to surrounding campuses, cities, states, and even the world. Since that time in the late 70s, countless thousands of sinners have come to Jesus Christ in saving faith on six different continents in partnership with hundreds of churches. Nearly 45 years later, disciples of Jesus Christ continue to be made on college campuses, all because a faith-filled woman invested in the life of a student took a phone call in the middle of the night from a college student. Friends, isn't it true that the future of Christ's mission depends in large part upon the next generation, upon the development of the next generation. If Christ's mission would flourish in the church and in this church, in this city, in this world, it will be because to some degree Christ's gospel is advancing in the lives of students seated in classrooms. From the highest levels down to elementary students. Christians aren't the only people who believe in the power of the classroom. Ashra Nomani is a Virginia mother who describes herself as a, quote, Islamic liberal Democrat feminist. Beginning in the summer of 2020, she found herself increasingly burdened for her children in their peers' classroom environment. Decisions made by her public school leadership that would shape the curriculum and context in her child's school concerned her. So she sprung into action and found that she wasn't alone. In fact, a sort of alliance formed even across party lines for people that shared this burden, that had this vision. The issue that drove a dramatic increase in voter registration and attendance in last November's statewide elections centered on education. Glenn Youngkin's winning campaign ads, the the most expensive and most aired advertisements, focused on the topic of parental involvement in school curriculum. Here's what I'm trying to say. Christian or not, deep down, we all know that this really matters. The development of the next generation. What happens in the classroom? It often determines the votes that we cast on either side of the aisle. The money that we spend, either in public or private education. The money that we sacrifice, potentially in the context of homeschool education. The sphere of education, the classroom, it really matters. And our hope is, as a church, that whether you're a student or you're someone potentially investing in a student, Our collective hope is that students around our city, whether in homes or in schools, and especially in our local neighborhood, our hope is that they would flourish to the glory of Jesus Christ. So to consider how we might participate in Christ's mission in the classroom, we'll look to the life and example of a young student named Daniel. And Daniel's story will show us four ways that we can be people who are used by God in this sphere. In four ways we can build people who are used by God in this sphere.
So let's begin in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. You'll find the story on page 737 in your pew Bibles. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Four ways Christ calls us to be people and to build people who can participate in his mission in the classroom. Number one, Christ calls us to be people of intellect. People of intellect. You'll notice that Daniel's one of four men who fit a particular description for which the king is looking. Look down at verse 4 once again. And listen to this description. Daniel, this young boy, is skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and able to teach the local literature and language. Daniel goes on to receive an additional three years of education under the tutelage of the Chaldeans. It's an impressive description of a young boy, isn't it? Now, Daniel's educational context certainly differed from that of our Lord Jesus of Nazareth. But in like fashion, the Gospel of Luke tells us that as a child, Jesus grew and became strong, and this is Luke 2.40, and was filled with wisdom. Just 12 verses later, we're not quite sure how much time has passed, but Jesus is likely around the age of 12 at this point. Luke 2, verse 52, describes Jesus as having increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Friends, if we would participate in God's mission in the classroom, we must be and build people of intellect, people who are hungry to know God, And his world. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The testimony of Scripture tells us that God speaks both by way of special revelation in his word and by way of general revelation in his world. So, in response, people who are shaped by God's word ought to have hungry minds both for the common grace of God revealed in the world as well as the salvific, saving grace of God revealed in His Son on the pages of Scripture. Minister Walt B. Babcock was an early 20th century minister in the state of New York and he'd often take cliffside uh, walks where he'd see views of Lake Ontario in the wilderness Inspired by those views, he penned these lyrics. 
This is my Father's world. Into my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, His hand the wonders wrought. Brothers and sisters, this is our Father's world. Whether we are beholding God's glory in nature or physics or chemistry or mathematics or literature or logic, this is His world. We ought to seek to know Him and His world. Now that doesn't mean we have to be particularly smart to be people of intellect. So we can read the collective sigh of relief. We all have different capacities and mental faculties. We each receive different educational opportunities. But like Daniel, we all ought to seek to be and to build people who long to know God and His world. By the age of 22, Isaac Newton's mind was ablaze with a passion to understand the world. His constant questioning of that which was both known and unknown, particularly in the, uh, the topic of physics, led him to make some of the most important scientific discoveries in history, including the law of gravitation and the three laws of motion. Now, I had heard Isaac Newton's name before. I did not know that about him. I had to look that up just, just to know that. And incidentally, if you, like me, struggle with the topic of calculus, if you find that you have a complicated relationship with that field of study, you can direct your frustration toward Mr. Newton, because I also learned that he discovered, or I guess formalized, calculus. It is Mr. Newton's fault. Despite his scientific contributions, Isaac Newton notably spent more time studying theology. His belief in God the Creator energized his scientific pursuit. He wanted to know his father's world. He famously said, Plato is my friend, Aristotle is my friend, but my greatest friend is truth. May we have minds that are hungry for truth. And may we develop minds that are hungry for truth, to know the Father's world. I recently learned that as an application to this sermon series of being in Rivermont for Rivermont on mission, one member of Rivermont is beginning a book reading club where she will use her gift of story telling and reading to build a love for learning and literature in young children in our community. What a fantastic application. The good news is, friends, we don't need to write lyrics that end up in hymnals or make scientific discoveries that alter history to be people of intellect. We just need humble hearts and minds that want to know the Father's world. How can you be and build this sort of student? The second description we see in the book of Daniel is that God calls us to be people of character. People of character. Look with me at Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel respected his Chaldean teachers. He humbly learned about God's world from them. But Daniel was bound by a greater law. He feared God more than he feared man. And Daniel would not compromise his character by engaging in their customs, 
particularly the ungodly, compromising customs. In fact, the language of the text implies that Daniel had a concern that the meat might have been sacrificed to idols, and he didn't want to participate in any way, in any worship, that would deny the one true God. Young, pure Daniel would not straddle the line of sin in that fashion. Instead, he sought to be as pure as possible in his character. Now, certainly Daniel must have suspected that the Chaldeans and even potentially his classmates might have misunderstood him, that they might regard him as extreme or as prude or as judgmental. But Daniel was driven by a concern for God and his glory. He was living in a foreign culture, but he wouldn't bow down to foreign gods or to foreign influences. I wonder how the influences of the world might tempt you and me to become defiled. How might we resolve, like Daniel, to not defile ourselves with our culture's food? From what must we abstain? What would God call you to reject or to repudiate or to deny? And what might that cost you if you were to do that? Whatever the cost, I can tell you it will not compare to what you gain. What you gain when you remain undefiled, unstained, is Christ-like character and a Christian profession. And 1 Peter 1 tells us, Peter's words for this unstained character, he calls it the tested genuineness of your faith. And Peter says that this is more precious than gold. In fact, he says, a Christian's unstained character, now this is not sinless perfection, but progressive holiness, conformity to the image of Jesus, a Christian's unstained character will be the very thing that on the day that Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven will result in praise and honor and glory. So what if it means we speak differently now or we think differently now or we believe differently now or dress differently now in light of what God says in His Word if on that day our unstained character results in His praise and honor and glory? May we never gain the world to forfeit our souls. Now friends, this might mean that we have to reject doctrines that our culture almost universally accepts as truth. It might mean we have to not participate in practices that contemporaries instinctively champion. And may we never do this self-righteously. May we always do it humbly, but by God's grace, may we always seek genuinely to remain undefiled for the sake of Jesus Christ. May we be people of character and build people of character, especially in the classroom. The third idea we see here in our text is that God calls us to be people of service to be people of service. Eventually, God sends King Nebuchadnezzar a dream. The wise men and prophets of Babylon failed to interpret that dream. But God had gifted Daniel spiritually and naturally and also trained him for this moment of service. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, 
No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries, namely God, made known to you what is to be about the future. Verse 30, but as for me, Daniel says, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel proceeds to serve the king by interpreting his dream. Daniel will do this numerous times throughout his life there in Babylon. And his humble service would lead to an elevated position. Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus himself said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we see that take place in Daniel's life. It seems he wasn't serving for any sort of selfish gain. He was genuinely seeking to serve, and that resulted in him being exalted. Chapter 2, verse 48 Immediately following this interaction, then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. May we too combine any intellect we have, any skills we have, development, training, expertise, and character in order to serve the needs of others. Titus 2 exhorts Christians to do good deeds that meet pressing needs, urgent needs. If we're honest with ourselves all too often, our natural sinful instinct is to pursue intellect or development for the purpose of self-promotion. What if we serve, what if we sought intellect and development and expertise for the purpose of sacrificial service? How trained can we be that we might serve the needs of others as effectively as possible. What a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you, if you're a student, thoughtfully, effectively serve the needs of those in your classroom, at your school, on your campus? Whether you are a student or aren't, for all of us, I wonder, is our intellectual development, our professional training, Is it leading to moral virtue and sacrificial service? And if you are investing in a student or seek to invest in a student, how can you model this vision of sacrificial service before them? There's one way that, one opportunity that you'll likely hear about in the coming weeks. As uh, our church has thought about how to be in Rivermont for Rivermont and to be on mission, God has opened up doors in conversations with uh, church leadership and pastors here. Um, as they've been talking with local school leadership, superintendents and principals for ways that we can actually meet pressing needs in their community. And and it seems like in many ways God's opening wide doors uh, for members of Rivermont to participate in that. I'm sure you'll hear more about opportunities to do that in the coming weeks and months. I want to invite you to sacrificially serve in that way. God gives every one of his people, not for the purpose of selfish gain, but for sacrificial service. And the story of Daniel in the witness of Scripture will tell us that the ultimate expression of sacrificial service isn't just in deed, but it's also in word. We saw a hint of that in chapter 2, verse 28. 
when in the middle of Daniel's interpretation of the dream, he actually shares a theological truth with the king, where he says, God in heaven gave this vision to you. In the climax of sacrificial service in word and in deed, reaches its height in chapter 6 of Daniel's story. From chapter 2 to chapter 6, the conflict in Daniel's life intensifies. His commitment to the Lord, his king, puts him at odds with the demands of the local king and the godless culture. This is such an interesting dynamic that we see play out in Daniel's life and also in Jesus's. But Daniel's godly intellect, character, and service result in him being, at the same time, distinguished and despised. And when a law is passed that forbids prayer, Daniel chooses to pray. There's an ensuing conflict that culminates in chapter 6. Having just violated the law of land, chapter 6, verse 16 tells us that Daniel is brought and he's cast into the den of lions. Listen to verse 17 of this familiar story. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. This is an irreversible sentence of death. What did Daniel get for his intellect, character, and and sacrificial service? He got a death sentence. Friends, brothers and sisters, God calls us to not only be people of intellect, character, and service, but to also and to ultimately be people of the cross. To be people of the cross. You see, Daniel's death sentence, that irreversible sentence, pointed forward to the death sentence of another. One day there would come another young boy who was pure and blameless, who refused to be defiled. He would become a man of great intellect, character, and service. And unlike Daniel, this man would not emerge from his confrontation with death unharmed. He would bear the scars of death and take the sentence of shame for sinners like you and me. A stone would be brought and rolled before his tomb to ensure that just as with Daniel, nothing might be changed concerning his status. And yet everything would be changed. By God's miraculous power, he would raise his son from the dead and vindicate him for all of history. Brothers and sisters, no matter how sincerely we strive to be and to build people of intellect, character, and service, the reality is this. We are all flawed and defiled. We've already eaten, so to speak, the king's food. We can't remain perfectly pure. Sin and death reign over us. And the gospel tells us that we belong in the den of lions, but not for our righteous suffering, rather for our sinful rebellion. But praise be to God, Jesus has conquered our enemies, our lions on our behalf. And now the Jesus of the cross 
calls us to carry the message of the cross into every sphere of our lives, including, for our topic this morning, the sphere of education. Now, this causes a tension. What do I mean? Your commitment to be a person of the cross, in other words, to proclaim the crucified Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, your commitment to be a person of the cross and to build people of the cross will at some point inevitably seemingly compromise your ability to be a person of intellect, character, and service. Your commitment to be and to proclaim a crucified Messiah may make you appear to be anti-intellectual, to even be regarded as morally repugnant, for your acts of service to be interpreted as selfish, bigoted, and hateful as you actually serve people in his name and proclaim his message. But when that happens, this text is telling us that the cross must be our standard, our measure in these categories. Not the world, never the world, Friends, the cross divides the world. When the cross is proclaimed, we either stumble over it in disbelief, everyone who hears it either stumbles over it in disbelief or falls before the cross in humble faith. And this happened in Jesus' day. As his first followers proclaimed his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, the Jewish world considered it weak. It was ridiculous. The Greek world considered it folly, unbelievable. That God would die and be a man and raised from the dead. It was ridiculous. And the Bible says that that's exactly how God's saving power advances. As that weak, foolish message gets proclaimed by his people. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what Christians preach to save those who believe. Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, is true wisdom, even though it appears folly. It's true power, even though it appears to be weakness. It's true intellect, even though it feels mutually exclusive with modern intellectual categories. Jesus is true character, true service. If you embrace the cross in a crucified Messiah, you may face a lion's den, so to speak, of opposition. But the good news is you'll never face the lion's den of God's wrath. Jesus has faced it down on your behalf. When we face the lion's den, if we face the lion's den of opposition, may it never be because of our own sin, because of our own pride, our own arrogance. But maybe may we be willing to face the opposition because of the message that we carry. May we be people who advance Christ's mission in the classroom by being people of intellect, character, service, and the cross. The ministry that began in the late 70s with Tom and Barbara's late-night phone call, as it spread across the world, eventually found its way to Lynchburg, Virginia. In 2006-2007, Rivermont EPC some of its leaders, met a team of campus outreach staff led by a man who some of you know, Matt Bradner, and other full-time campus outreach workers who sensed that God was calling them to serve students, college students, on campuses in central Virginia. 
Eventually that dating partnership became a marriage and Rivermont EPC became Campus Outreach's regional hub church and those folks moved to town. At some point in Matt's early years in town, he heard two remarks about the college just down the hill from us, my alma mater, Randolph College. First he heard that it was, quote, a graveyard for college ministries. Second, he heard about a group of women, I believe from this church, who had been praying for that college for decades. I don't know exactly how long they'd been praying. I wonder if perhaps their prayers began around the time Barbara Barker's phone rang that evening. I do know this. God heard and answered their prayers. It began when a pastor's wife answered the phone call of a slightly drunk college student at 2 a.m. That's how he began to answer their their prayers. And one day, decades later, God sent a rather ordinary man on a rather ordinary Sunday afternoon to that college to speak to the men's basketball team. And it was another Tom and Barbara story. Matt met a young man that afternoon who, just like Tom, God had been convicting him of his sin, giving him a sense of his need for a Savior. And later that week, Matt led that man to Jesus Christ. And that man stands before you today and preaches because a legacy of people of intellect, character, service, people like Matt, people here at Rivermont, cared about intellectual development, character development, service development, and especially the legacy of the cross in the lives of students in our community. My prayer and hope is that there would be many more stories like this among local students and in local schools in the years to come for the glory of Jesus because of people here at our church, that we would be people of intellect, character, service, and the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus has stared down your wrath that he's died the death we deserve, that he has risen from the dead, that he stands now in the new creation already with both feet there in heaven, that he's given us his Holy Spirit as a security and assurance that one day we will too. And God, we pray that in the, in the meantime, in the now but not yet, that we would be faithful to him. We pray especially for fruit to come in local classrooms this year and in the years to come because of the witness of our church. In Jesus' name, amen.